0: Couch
1: Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RVMA's lecture archive. Originally a rock and blues guitarist, Junior Marvin would end up a member of Bob Marley and the Wailers from 1977 to 1981 after initially getting in the reggae through Toots and the Maytals. Following Marley's death, Marvin and his fellow whalers continued to make music, with Marvin serving as guitarist and producer or co-producer on three albums before eventually leaving the group in 1997. In his lecture at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy, Marvin looked back on a career that brought him close to greats like Marley, Stevie Wonder, and Jimi Hendrix. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Thank you. That was nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, I hope today that we're going to be able to uh, move through uh, Junior Junior Marvin's very storied and uh, interesting career um, with so many different types of music. And of course, with some really uh, landmark and important uh, pieces and albums of course. Uh, so what I want to start out with is first uh, you're from Jamaica and uh, born there and spent the first nine years of your, your life. Can you tell me a little bit about what you remember from from that time?
2: remember a lot of sunshine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I left Jamaica when I was nine years old. Um, my parents relocated to the United States and to the UK. My father went to the United States to become, uh, to study theology, (laughs) which he didn't want to do, but (laughs) our family had our own church in Jamaica, so it was like expected of him, although his preference was to be a jazz musician. And my mother was into clothes designing, so England seemed pretty cool. And she went there, and eventually both of them resided in England, in the UK. And then they sent for myself and my sister, I was nine years old, my sister was five years old, and I was my sister's dad and mom <laughs> while my parents were away. And uh, I went to England, and it was a great experience for me because, um, apart from the weather, <laughs> um, I had, you know, opportunity to meet a lot of people from all over the world. You know, England is a mother country for the common British Commonwealth. And they have people from Africa, from Asia, China, you know, Canada, (laughs) all over. Which is not a bad thing, you know, because I think we all learn from each other as human beings, as we develop as people. And so therefore, it was great to meet people from all over the world and share experiences. Um, My first experience at school in England was that on my first day, there was a boy from India, from Bombay, and he was the best fighter in the school, so I had to fight him on the first day. <laughs> and we, we, it was like a draw, so we controlled the school. <laughs> Not in a bad way. It was more like just, you know, youthful uh, stuff, you know. Like, give me your lunch or else. <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. I'm joking. <laughs> But anyway, um, also it was very good for me getting to know my parents because I never met my father really until I was, you know, almost my 10th birthday. And he he wanted to be a jazz piano player like Ramsey Lewis or Oscar Peterson instead of playing classical and gospel music, which is what we learned from our family in Jamaica. And the fact that we had our own church, we had to learn gospel music first and then classical and nothing else, (laughs) it was taboo, you know, so um, being in England, my freedom was pretty good in terms of what I could listen to musically and what I could share with people from other parts of the world, you know, like I got into Indian music, I got into African music, of course I got into British music, you know, mainly like the Beatles and stuff like that, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, you know, And of course, my family coming from Jamaica, um, I was always into Jamaican music, you know, which was like ska, blue beat, reggae, raga. (laughs) You know, so many names for Jamaican music throughout the ages, but predominantly, you know, what most people call reggae. You know, I got that from my uncle who had his own sound system and so, um, The academic side of being in England was also very good because um, it became like a competition for me in school. I had um, three other friends. Uh, One was from Trinidad, one was from uh, Mauritius, and one was from India. And whatever the subject was, whoever came last out of the four was of course, you know, laughed at by the others. But it did help because it made me work harder not to be last out of the four. And um, academically, I did quite well in school in England. And of course, you had a lot of choices for sports and great music as well. Mainly classical music at that time. But you know, at home, you could listen to the radio, watch TV, and my first real discovery of you know what it was like to be like a musician or rock star or pop star was when I saw Elvis on TV doing Jailhouse Rock and I thought, oh I want to be Elvis (laughs) and that's where it all started for me musically in terms of me wanting to be an entertainer but um, in actuality I started playing piano when I was two years old because my aunt, my great aunt was a piano teacher and everyone in the family had to learn to play before we could even talk. My cousins, my sister, all of us, we were just plonked on the piano and we had no choice and she had one of those canes, you know, the long, little round cane with a hook on the end. And if you hit a wrong note, that cane will be coming down for you. (laughs) And uh, she was pretty strict, but it was a benefit, you know, because it helped. In many ways, you know, if you play music, it helps you with mathematics, helps you with timing, helps you with melody, helps you with appreciation for the arts. So that was my humble beginning right there.
0: (laughs) And, you know, you moved from the piano to the guitar and through to being in a number of different bands, but... In between that period, you were involved in musical theater. So, i wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, when I got to England, my mother had a friend who was a hairdresser where she would go have her hair done maybe once every two weeks. And that particular hairdresser was very good friends with an agent who, you know, provided people for TV commercials, uh, small parts in the movies you know, mainly young kids who they would need, you know, in, a, in a, what you call a crowd scene or something like that. And uh, she asked my mom if she could take my sister and myself to some auditions because, you know, they could make some good money, <laughs> put the kids to work. <laughs> and uh, my, mom, my mother was very active. She always wanted to get myself involved in whatever that was progressive, you know, keep me out of trouble. And also my sister, my sister when she arrived in England, she had a very strong Jamaican accent. And my father was like, I think we need to change that. (laughs) And so they sent her to elocution lessons and she did very well and she actually became quite a big star. She did um, movies, there was a, um, uh, a series of movies called No Kidding and she appeared in one of the movies on, you know, as with the speaking part, so she became a star before me. <laughs> I'm joking. But anyway uh, <laughs> um, so that's how I got into acting. And um, when I was twelve, I got into um, the theater in the west end of, of, of London, where it's like Broadway of you know, the United States, you know. And um, there was a theater called the Shaftesbury Theatre. And they brought a play from Africa, from South Africa. The play was called King Kong. It was about an African boxer and his rise to fame and his fall from fame, you know, due to people expecting too much of him, especially financially. And uh, they needed some young kids because they weren't allowed through the British, you know, equity, actors' union, weren't allowed to bring young kids under a certain age all the way from South Africa to come and perform on a daily basis. And so they had to employ young black kids in England to play those parts. And I was fortunate to be one of them. And that was my first like, real dive into being an actor. And uh, we had our own tutors. I was 12 years old, we had our own tutors. And so we performed every day twice on Wednesday, and we I think we had Sundays off. <laughs> but it was great, you know, it was a lot of fun. There was like five boys involved, and we were all around the same age, and you know, we, we had a glamorous time. We had a tutor that only worked with us for like two hours a day, so it was more fun than anything else, you know. And um, from there, I started doing extra work um, for films, and I was fortunate to get a part in the movie Help with the Beatles. And they were pretty short guys. And for my age, I was pretty tall. So there was a scene in the movie Help where they're chasing Ringo, supposedly in the Bahamas on a beach, but it was actually simulated in a studio in England. And um, I was one of the people chasing Ringo. That was my part in help. <laughs> but uh, I enjoyed it, and the Beatles were great guys. They were very funny. They were having a ball, and um, it was great to meet them. And it, that did influence me, because later on, I discovered how many great songs they'd written. And, of course, it influenced the whole world, I think. you know. And I continued doing TV work. I did The Saint with Roger Moore. I did... Um, uh, I forgot the name of the other series, but it was Patrick McGowan who was a star of that TV show and I did a lot of commercials and bits and pieces. I never really got a speaking part apart from when I was in Hair, which came later on. Hair came when I was about 18 and that was a pretty big musical around the world, maybe one of the biggest and it had a lot of songs in it and a lot of dancing and a lot of acting and it really stretched you out in terms of being an entertainer, an artist, rather than just maybe a musician or a singer or an actor. You had to incorporate all three things. And the auditions were that you had to choose a song and sing it well, and you also had to read and act something. And I was fortunate to get a part in that, and I was in that for like three years. And there was actually a recording of the London cast of Hair, that went into the top of the POPs charts. (laughs) And so I'm very honored and blessed, and I feel very humbled that, you know, I was able to be in the right place at the right time to go through these experiences. So that was my involvement in acting. But when I became, like, into my later teens, there were less and less parts for black actors in the UK. And coming from a music background with my family, I decided that maybe I should split myself between music and acting and be able to get more work. And eventually music took over. So that was the beginning of the next era.
0: <laughs> and can you talk a little bit about the, that that era and how it took you to to the United States because you were in the UK, but then going to the United States and working with some some major musicians in the US.
2: Well, in the UK at the time, um, there was a movement called the British Invasion. I'm sure you might have all heard about it. You know, the day after the Beatles arrived in America, it was the British Invasion. I mean, they'd never seen anything like that when they arrived here. They were like thousands and thousands of screaming girls and like the Beatles themselves were like, what's going on? <laughs> you know, it was really amazing to see the response that they got. People love their music, love their songs and coming to America was a big deal for musicians in the UK. They like opened the door that they actually got, you know, because normally people would say American musicians are the best, you know, And so the British musician, even though they have a longer history, um, their musicians for modern music weren't really as popular as the American music and American musicians were. So it opened the door for the British musicians who always thought they were just as good, if not better, (laughs) than everybody else. (laughs) But uh, that's a British thing. (laughs) So um, people like Dave Clark Five, the Mercy Beats, all the bands from Liverpool and from that part of the country started to invade the United States. And from there it went to like more like Eric Clapton, the blues invasion. You know, a lot of blues bands who got their training from American blues musicians from buying records, on, you know, through ordering it from a record company and having it shipped and then they learnt the songs and they discovered people like Howling Wolf, and um, BB King, and T-Bone Walker, and all the other blues artists, and blues became very, very popular in the UK, although it wasn't really popular in the United States where it was originated from. And eventually, a lot of the blues musicians started to form bands that was verging on blues, pop, blues, rock um, blues punk, you know, there was so many mixtures that involved blues and you had, you know, that The Cream came to the United States, they were a big hit Led Zeppelin came, The Rolling Stones, and all of these bands came from a blues format you know, because it was easy to play the blues once you learned three chords (laughs) and maybe it wasn't that easy, but it was a great way to start being a musician And what the British bands would do is they would have like a repertoire of maybe 12 songs and they would learn those 12 songs like nothing else ever existed. And so they became very good at whatever they did. They wouldn't jam because they couldn't play anything else. (laughs) But those songs that they learned and knew in their repertoire, you know, it was like outstanding because they were so tight. And uh, they did very well with the, you know, the British invasion musically of America and uh, then they became friends with the American counterpart musicians who said, well, hey, the, didn't the blues start here, you know? <laughs> okay, maybe we should get into the same thing like the British bands and then, of course, you had the Beach Boys coming with the California Beach Sound and then you had bands like um, Allman Brothers, Southern Rock and um, Jay Gows Band and Many, many, uh, I think, American bands that patterned themselves off of the style of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. And so it became more of a universal type of approach now. It wasn't just a British invasion anymore, it was more universal. You know, there was no competition, it was more like a collaboration between musicians from Europe and musicians from the United States. And then I think later on African musicians started to influence. And of course, you know, you have South American, Cuban. Now I think it's everything, everything counts, everything works. Whether you rap, whether you do poetry with music, or whether you mix jazz with music or folk or country, it, it all seems to be moving like many rivers into one ocean. And I think it's beautiful. (laughs) So that's where we are right now, you know?
0: And with you sort of getting more into music and and sort of moving from the piano to the musical theater and then to... Picking up the guitar and sort of starting with this this blues music, you know, um, you started your band right. Hanson in, in the early 70s And um, before you talk about Hanson, I think uh, we want to hear just a little bit of uh, one of one of the songs It's a song called Rain from 1973, we'll hear the first kind of minutes well, Before you play
2: Rain, yeah. I'd like to say that my first band was with um, for school friends of mine um, I saw Elvis on TV and I wanted to be like Elvis, and one of my best friends in school said, hey, you know, let's go out and buy some guitars. Mm -hmm. So that started, so I bought a bright cherry red guitar, the prettiest guitar in the store, (laughs) and I looked at it for about a week before I touched it, or tried to play it, and then I had a few lessons, and then my first band was actually called Blue Ace Unit, you know, similar to the names that American bands would use in that time, or before that time, And from there, my next band was with a very famous English lady by the name of Linda Lewis. Some of you might have heard of her. And we had a band called um, um, White Rabbit, which was a song by Jefferson Airplane, Grace Slick. And um, unfortunately, we never got a chance to record, but we did tour for a while. And from there, I went to Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) And of course, from there, Jimi Hendrix, and my middle name is Hanson, so it became Junior Hanson to go with JH for Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and of course, I wanted to have a three piece rock band, Everything Like Jimmy. And um, that's where the Hanson album came about. And um, I was fortunate to come to America and get a record deal with um, Atlantic Records, care of. Um, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, who started their own label and had the distribution done by Atlantic Records. And if, incidentally, the dream of every British musician in my time growing up was to come to America and get a record deal. And of course, I wanted to come to America and get a record deal. But I was told that, hey, you can't do that. And I go, why not? They go, well, you're black. <laughs> At that time, you know, it was only the British white musicians who came to America and had the opportunity to get a deal, you know. And I thought, well, I don't care, I'm going to try anyway. And I was, I think, the first black musician from the UK who actually came to America and got a record deal. And when I returned to the UK with a record deal and I booked a studio and paid for everything, like I became the local hero because nobody believed that could happen, you know. So it changed the whole concept of what color you were in terms of selling your songs or your music in any part of the world. So I'm quite proud of myself for not listening to other people when they say no. So don't you ever listen to somebody when you have a dream and they say no. (laughs) (laughs) So here's Hansen.
1: (laughs) Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to Couch Wisdom. Thank you.
0: Uh, You can definitely hear the Jimi Hendrix influence on that that tune for sure.
2: Well, I'm still learning from Jimi Hendrix, believe me.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And um, can you talk a little bit more about some of your other influences at that time? I know you actually did meet Jimi Hendrix too.
2: Yeah, he was so shy. I could not believe it. You know, when you see him perform on stage and then you meet him, it's like night and day. I was um, at a club in London called the speakeasy where a lot of British musicians would jam together and meet and become famous. <laughs> And um, I mean, if you did a p- good performance there, everybody knew about you the next day. And he jammed and blew everybody's mind. And I went up boldly and said hello. And he kind of went hello. <laughs> and I went, my God, he's so shy, you know. And then he wouldn't say, he wouldn't talk. He was just like smiled, and that was it. But yeah, that was enough for me just to shake his hand, you know. He he seemed a very deep person, especially in his lyrics. You know, people always talk about his guitar playing, but I think his lyrics are very profound and very universal, and very um, before its time. You know, and he had great people like Bob Dylan who gave him a lot of ideas, and uh, people are just now realizing how important his words were. Like, there's a song called "Message of Love," you know, the song called "Freedom." Um, you know, many of his songs have a message, so I would advise a lot of people to go back and listen to not only his playing, but the message in his songs. I hope I'm not boring you guys. <laughs> no? Everybody smiling? <laughs>
0: All right, if I get
2: boring, just put your hand up and I'll stop.
0: <laughs> so um, at, at that time, also, you were doing a lot of, a lot of session work, um, and you met... Chris Blackwell mm-hmm. and uh did some work with him as, as producer and uh there was a whole range of different things and so uh what I'd like to do is play a couple of songs that uh, that you worked on just to really show that range the first is the first reggae song that you performed on Tutsi the Metal's reggae got soul from 1975 and then uh Steve Winwood a uh, vacant chair from 1977, just to kind of give a sense of the of your of your range during the time when you were working with uh, Chris Blackwell. This lady did her research, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> Good job. <laughs> so if we could play those two, and then we'll have a little chat. <laughs> I mean. There's so many more I could have chosen, but I really kind of think that those two songs demonstrate a really huge range, um, not only in yourself, but also um, with Chris Blackwell. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about working with him and, and uh, doing that work at the time.
2: Well, I, was, I moved out from my family, and I was living in Ladbroke Grove in London, a very fashionable area where they have like a really famous antique market on Portobello Road and Island Records was right in that area. So I was literally five minutes from the studio. And one of my good friends, um, his name was Johnny Burns. He was an engineer and a producer. He worked with Phil Collins and um, his band and produced music there. And he said, well, come to the studio and hang out. You might get some work. (laughs) So I went there and uh, I was actually very good friends with um, the saxophone player from Traffic, Chris Wood. In fact, we were best friends. Every night we would jam until 5 in the morning, and then I'd jump on the subway and go home. You know. And uh, we were really tired, and he introduced me to a lot of people. And he introduced me to uh, Steve Winwood, Jim Capaldi, Chris Blackwell, and that's when I started to get a lot of work. And then people started to pick up on the fact that I could play different styles, because my first musical type of session work were with African musicians in England, uh, like Eddie Kwanso, who played trumpet, Reebop who played percussion with Traffic, um, Remy Kabaka, who played with Fela. And so I developed to learn that African rhythm as well with music and the way they played. And, of course, I was a big fan of Led Zeppelin and... Jimi Hendrix, so I had that rock thing going. And with my father, um, who was more a jazz fan, I learned about George Benson, Wes Montgomery, yeah. and I learned blues also, T-Bone Walker, um, you know, B.B. King, Then I got into learning about being a keyboard player as well. I learned about, you know, Jimmy Smith, and Oscar Peterson, and you know, um, so many different styles of music I was, you know, um, privy to. I, I was able to have all these records my father bought and learn different styles. And then people from the Island Records, especially Chris Blackwell, realized that I wasn't just playing blues or playing rock or playing pop. My styles would change very quickly. and not at a pretty good level you know because I used to practice like eight hours every day religiously you know and um so I was able to acquire a few different styles you know I liked Joni Mitchell very much you know I like um you know uh, Crosby Stills and Nash you know I liked a lot of different styles of music and sounds and uh You know, even when the Beatles got into um, transcendental meditation and the Eastern style of music, I liked that a lot too. And so um, I was able to do a lot of different sessions for different styles and genres of music because of things that I learned, you know, and things that I tried to learn, put it that way. (laughs) Um, And the Chris Blackhall was kind of a little bit, impressed and a bit puzzled as to how I acquired all these different styles and I explained to him that I was Jamaican and that my uncle had a sound system and so I grew up with reggae. Every weekend we would go to house parties where my uncle would play sound system and so I was in touch with Jamaican music, I was in touch with American music, I liked Stevie Wonder, I liked Aretha Franklin, I liked all the blues people, the jazz people. And I was was very fortunate to be exposed to all these different styles of music. And I liked all of them. I didn't think any was any better than the other. They all was on even par for me, you know? And so I tried to learn a little bit of everything and put it all together in one. And and, um, I got this session with Toots and then Chris sent me on tour with a band from Jamaica called The Heptones And later on I discovered that they were basically just watching me to see what my personality was like before they offered me the job with Bob Marley.
0: (laughs) And I want to ask you specifically if you you could think back to Valentine's Day of 1977.
2: Well, it's a day that I'll never forget. It's very vivid in my mind, I think it always will be. Um, It was Valentine's Day, I was supposed to take my girlfriend out for dinner and uh, i had my own flat in the area and she lived in north of london so we were planning to get together in late afternoon and then in the morning i got a call from chris blackhorse saying um there's someone here i'd like you to meet and i said well i'm going out with my girlfriend <laughs> it's valentine's day my friend <laughs> no sessions today and he said well can you see her later i said well i'm going to see her later so well, that's cool we'll go and visit this friend of mine, I'm sure you'd like to meet. And I said, well, who is it? He goes, no, no, I'm not gonna tell you. Okay, all right, but bring your guitar with you. I said, okay, so I'm thinking it's a session that he wants me to do on Valentine's Day. And then I get a phone call from the United States, and on the other end of the phone was this black American guy, my name is Stevie Wonder. And uh, I represent Black Bull Music, and I would like to sign you up for 10 years. And I'm thinking, who's playing a joke on me? Someone <laughs> playing a practical joke now. It's not funny, you know, because I'm a biggest fan of Stevie Wonder as well. And no, so this is Stevie, um, my guitar player, Andre. Uh, his wife is expecting a baby, and, um, you know, he recommended you. And I'd met Stevie Wonder's backing singer Denise Williams anyone know about her and uh, his guitar players and everything while I was you know working with um Atlantic Records and Emerson Lake and Palmer doing two albums for them and so uh Steve's guitar player did a guest spot on my second album which was titled Magic Dragon and so when he couldn't make the tour he recommended me and I was very honored that he did but I was very surprised to get a phone call from the United States from no other, no other than Stevie Wonder, you know, and I'm like, saying, okay, are you sure you're Stevie Wonder, <laughs> you know? He said, yes, and then he explained to me the whole scenario and how he got my number, I said, okay, I guess you are Stevie Wonder. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> he says, well, I'd like you to come and work with me, uh, join my company, which is called blackbow Music, You know, um, one of the principal things that you'd have to do, you'd have to sign a contract for 10 years. Because, you know, if you play with Stevie Wonder and you leave Stevie Wonder, you'll be a household name, you know. And he was making a joke out of it, but I think he was serious. (laughs) And I said, Well, I'm really honored that you would even call me, much less, you know, invite me to come and play your music, which I think is very difficult to play, (laughs) one. (laughs) And two, um, you know, you could get so many great guitar players in America. He goes, no, I heard a little bit of your style and I like the fact that you play different styles. And, you know, um, I was just in Jamaica with Bob Marley and we did a concert together and, uh, you know, I'm actually doing a couple of reggae songs, which was later on, of course, you know, Boogie on Reggae Woman and what was the other one? Master Blaster, which he did later. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And then there's a knock on my door while I'm on the phone. So I said, um, let me just go see who's at the door. I'll come back one second. And Chris Blackwell with his white Rolls Royce outside my house. Are you ready? <laughs> ready? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. i got an point with you. I said, oh, let me just get this person off the phone. I didn't tell him who it was, you know. (laughs) So I went back to Stevie and I said, Stevie, I'm really like, I'm so humbled and appreciative of the fact that you called me and offered me this job. And uh, 10 years is a long time, but I will definitely like a couple of hours to consider it because I have a previous engagement and I don't want to keep that person waiting, so is it possible for me to call you back? He said, no problem, call me back, everything's great, you know. We can talk some more and I'll explain more things to you You know, we need to call back So hung up, took his number, everything, great Grabbed my guitar, rushed out, met Chris Blackwell Jumped in the Rolls Royce And we were driving, So where are we going? He goes, oh, we're going to Chelsea So we're not going to the studio? No, 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 we're going to Chelsea, gonna meet some people there But so what am I bringing my guitar for? Oh, well, I want you to maybe jam with these people Okay, no problem So we're driving to Chelsea and of Chelsea is a very fashionable part of London, you know that's where all the hip people live, you know, a very middle class, upper middle class, really beautiful area, a lot of parks, great clothes, of course. Everybody heard about the Kings Road, where the mods came from? <laughs> yeah, very fashionable part of area of London. And we went to this house, um, like a big five-story building house. And we went in on the ground floor and um, there was this short man in front of the fireplace with his back to me with big dreadlocks and there was like a big aura around him and I could see this big aura and I'm going to myself, that's gotta be Bob Marley. You know, just like, I didn't know Bob Marley, I'd never met him before, but that was the first thing that hit my mind. It had to be, nobody else would have this big horror around him, you know, like the way he did, I don't know why my mind just zoomed in on Bob Marley, but when he turned around, it was Bob Marley with this big grin on his face, you know, like a Cheshire Cat. And uh, he said, what, well, man? Everything Irie? Like, in Jamaican patwa, that means, how you doing? Everything's good? <laughs> um, I'll have to teach you guys patois later. <laughs> but anyway, um, he said, welcome, and um, I've, I've been hearing about you for quite a while. I heard you're the young Jimi Hendrix of London. I go, no, 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 no! I'm not not young Jimi Hendrix at all. I'm maybe baby Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> but um, I got a long way to go to you know to be the level of Jimi Hendrix. He said, "Well, I've heard very good things about you, and I'd like you to join the Whalers." I'm going, uh, <laughs> what did you just say? <laughs> and Chris Blackwell is like shaking his head and nodding at me and grinning, and Bob's like waiting for me to say yes, and I'm going, but. You haven't heard me play or anything. He goes, Oh, we've heard you. Don't worry. You know, in fact, let's go jam a little bit. And so I said to myself, Is this an audition? You know, I'm looking at Chris like all nervous. And he goes, No, 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 it's not an audition. Just wants to jam a couple of songs with you. And, you know, so I said, Okay. And we jammed Waiting in Vain, Jamming, and Exodus. And each song lasted about 40 minutes. You know. And the other musicians who played with us was Tyrone Downey. He was a keyboard player, but he was playing bass. So I thought he was a bass player. I didn't know that he was a keyboard player. And he's a pretty good bass player too. He also plays guitar and sings. But anyway, he was like, at that time, the person who Bob was very close to because Tyrone grew up in the church he played keyboard, amazing keyboard. He played like, you know, everybody. You know, he could play jazz, he could play blues, he could play gospel because he grew up in the church. And he lived next door to the church and he would jump over the fence and practice in the church. And he was pretty amazing. But at that point in time, I thought he was a bass player. So he was playing bass, Bob was playing acoustic with and they had a little amplifier there, so I plugged my electric guitar in. And we play those three songs. And many, many years later, maybe fifteen years later, somebody came and gave me a cassette with that same jam. They re- actually recorded it and didn't tell me nothing. <laughs> 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 and I was so happy to get it. I couldn't believe it because but I, I was kinda like shocked. Why did they record it and didn't even tell me, you know? But I mean that happens in the music business quite a lot. People will invite you to jam and they'll record you and you never know about it until they have a hit song with your line on it. <laughs> but anyway, um, that wasn't, reason, wasn't the reason why Bob did it. I think he just wanted to be able to listen to me and see what I would do on first impulse on songs that he was preparing for Exodus and Kaya. And um, after we jammed for you know almost two hours or, or just over two hours, is that right, three fours? Yeah, so over an hour, right? And yeah. <laughs> Right. And um, he slapped five with me and said, welcome to the Whalers." And then, of course, I got goose pimples all over. And I've, then I had this bell in my head go, bing, Stevie Wonder. <laughs> I'm going, wait a minute now. Uh, did I get a call from Stevie Wonder today? I start, am I dreaming? So I started pinching myself without Chris or Bob seeing me. I'm like, Ah yeah yeah, and I'm pinching myself. You know, this this is it it is real. Pinch hurts. You know, and Chris Black was going yeah. You know, you need to yeah get together with the whalers, and I said, um, can I call you guys back in an hour or so and let you know (laughs) what I want to do? And like they're looking at me like, is this kid stupid or something? (laughs) You know, this this is going to be the next third world superstar or the first gonna be very big and Blackpool was telling me, you know, you need to just tell Bob yes. And I'm saying, well, do you mind if I just go home and meditate on this for a little bit, you know? He said, okay, so, I he didn't even take me home. He must have been mad. <laughs> I jumped in a cab and went home, you know? And I don't think he was mad. I think he was just like a little bit shocked that I didn't, you know, agree right away to take the job with Bob. Not knowing that I got a call from Stevie Wonder, he wouldn't know what was going through my mind, you know? So I went home and I called my parents and I told them the good news and the call of my friends or musician friends that I had and I said, listen, I don't know what to do, you know, who am I going to, you know, how can you pick between Stevie Wonder and Bob Marley? It's impossible. They go, well, there's not a lot of guitar players in Jamaica, not of your standard, and there are tons of guitar players in America and you need to support your country. <laughs> so, they convinced me that I should go with Bob Marley, and that's how I made the decision. And so I called Stevie and I explained it to him that, you know, 10 years, I used that as an excuse. 10 years is a long time, Stevie, you know. Um, and f- by the way, I just met Bob Marley and he offered me a job, and he goes, oh, that's awesome, you know, and he goes, well, why don't you try with Bob because there's no stipulation of time involved. Whereas with me, you would have to sign something. And um, if it doesn't work out, call me back. Oh, really? I can call you back? (laughs) He goes, yes, please do. And then I called Chris Blackall. And um, because Bob doesn't answer telephones. (laughs) It's too Babylon for him. (laughs) And um, you get that one, right? (laughs) At that time, he would not answer telephone. Somebody answered it for him all the time. He was very alien to a lot of things, but um, not that he was against it, but that was just Bob, you know? Very intense, very focused. And uh, I told Chris Blackhall that I had, you know, gotten a call from Stevie Wonder while he was waiting outside for me, and I had to tell Stevie, no. <laughs> oh, great, great, great. Rehearsal starts tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and he was serious, and the rehearsal did start the next day. Bob gave me like five albums. I'll well, learn those. <laughs> we're going to be playing them over the next three days, you know. And um, I just swatted as much as I could all those songs, and um, everything worked out with Bob. And a couple of years later, we did a convention in Philadelphia for Gamble and Huff, who were great songwriters who were responsible for all the hits from Philly especially the OJs and people like that. Songs like Now That We Found Love and lots of others. And they have this um, convention in Philadelphia and they invited Stevie Wonder and Bob Marley to be the um, you know, special guest. And there I was in the middle of the stage with Stevie hanging on to me. Don't let me go, I don't want to fall off the edge of the stage. And then Bob's the other side like beaming and dancing and I'm thinking, wow. You know, take pictures, please. (laughs) But you know, it was so weird how things unfold in life. You know, so that's the history of my connection with Bob Marley, Stevie Wonder, and the greatest opportunity that's happened to me in my life so far.
0: And then, of course, the first album recorded with Bob Marley was the one that has been named the greatest album of the 20th century, Exodus. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for me, one of the most memorable songs on that album is, is Waiting in Vain, and uh, we're going to play the section that has uh, your solo, and then want to talk a little bit about the recording of that song and uh, that particular solo and the kind of style that uh, it presents. Okay, thank you. It has such a lovely sort of lyrical kind of quality to it that it's, it's as resonant as Bob's lyrics in the song almost. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what went into that particular sound?
2: Well, first of all, don't thank me for that solo. You have to thank the universe <laughs> and God for that solo. I had nothing to do with it, I was just the instrument, believe me. What happened was, uh, we recorded a song and incidentally, doing Exodus and Kaya, we spent three months in the studio, we had the studio booked 24-7, and I believe that's why are, those two albums are so well done, and so still acknowledged now because it was a lot of time spent on it, it wasn't just, you know, running and run out, it, it was like, Nobody touched the board when we left, came back, everything was as it was. So it it enabled us to really, and Bob really, to really get into getting very articulate about everything. And he explained to me that he didn't want just a solo in the song. He wanted something that will be part of the song and add to the song. And so it would be one when every time you listen to it, it will be one. And also s- something that people could sing along with, for most of it anyway. And I tried to do it late one night, about two in the morning, and it just wouldn't come, you know? And everything was pretty organic back then, you know, analog and we didn't record it and do another piece and piece it all together. It was just one take, or you have to start from scratch again. It wasn't like how the technology is now where you can piece things together. And um, just living around the corner from the studio, I could go home every night. Some of the guys would sleep in the studio. You know, they'd be too tired to go home (laughs) to their hotel. But I lived in England, so my house was around the corner and I go home. And I went home and I had a dream about the song. And I don't remember the dream, but I knew I was dreaming about the song. Maybe it just stuck in my head. And then the next day I came back to the studio in the afternoon and I did it first take. And after I did it, it was like something was controlling my hand. It wasn't me. It was like whatever I dreamt came out. And I had no control over it. And then when it was done, it was like, Where did that come from? You know, it was like a gift. I don't know, Um, I think as a musician, if you practice something for many, many hours, lots of repetition, your muscle memory will give you a bonus, or the universe will give you a bonus for your hard work. And it's not something that you came up with, it's just the fact that you've physically gone over this thing so much that now the computer in your brain takes over and put something together for you, and I always call it a gift. For example, whenever we do live shows, I never plan my solos. I don't even think about them, I I kind of just let it happen, just go in a trance and let it happen, and then I believe the subconscious and the universe guides you and comes with something special and you go, how did I manage to do that, you know? Did you guys record that, you know, because I don't know if anyone else in the room has ever done that, but if you take a song and you play it for three hours, the same song, after about two hours, you will go into another level. You most definitely will. You won't even be thinking. You'll be thinking about, um, what am I gonna have for dinner, you know? Maybe I'll have um, vegetarian tonight or something. And you're still playing the song, but your mind is somewhere else because the repetition has made the muscle memory take over. And I'm sure lots of people who play in bands, that's how they become tight because they place so much together that they don't have to even think about what's coming next. They look at each other and they know what's gonna be played by the other musician just by that repetition. And I think because I tried to do it the night before, maybe 10 times and it just didn't have that flow that I wanted or Bob wanted. And the next day I came back and I dreamt about it the night before And it just came down and when when the the solo ended, everybody kind of froze in the studio. We all froze and looked at each other and don't nobody touch the machine and, and delete that by mistake, you know? And then we played it back about 10 times and kind of laughed at each other and like, yeah, we got it, we got it, you know? And then Waiting in Vain was complete, you know? And like I said, I cannot pat myself on my back for that at all because it was just supernatural, you know, very spiritual and very organic. And that's how I like to approach what I do now because I learned so much from that experience that once you go over something as many times as it's comfortable for you or even if it's uncomfortable, you will get a reward from it it will become so tight and you'll do things that you never planned, you know, because the muscle memory and just the vibe of the whole thing and the feeling or the love that you have for it will give you that gift and make it special. So for me, every time I hear that solo, I think I need to go back home and practice it. So I still know how to play it, you know, like every time we do a show, I practice it before the show because I don't want to play one note different. And it's not easy to reproduce something that came organically like that. You know, it's like you have to go and learn it now and remember it, you know. <laughs> so that's, that's you know, waiting in vain.
0: And speaking of... You guys get it?
2: Yeah. 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 Okay, I, I don't want to go too spacey on you. <laughs> I didn't smoke anything today, by the
0: way. And sort of speaking of kind of... Sounds and, and, and rhythms and songs that kind of came organically. I was wondering if you could grab the uh, guitar and... There's one thing i like to add, though. Okay. The sound
2: didn't come by accident, and Exodus did not win CD of the Century by accident. When I was touring as Junior Hanson in 1973, promoting my albums with Manticore Atlantic... I met a gentleman by the name of Roger Mayer. Now, he invented the fuzz tone. The the fuzz tone that you hear on Satisfaction by the Rolling Stone was actually a little box that he made that reproduced that sound. And if you walked past that box and saw it, the way it was designed at that time, you most probably kick it because it just looked like a little clumsy little box with a bunch of wires coming out of it. But... He ended up being the guitar tech for Jimi Hendrix and also reproduced all of those sounds that Jimi Hendrix used, like the Octavia, you know, Univibe, all the distortions, the Voodoo Child. And Roger came to one of my performances in New York and at the end of it he said to me, "Um, I think I can help you. I said, yeah how are you going to help me? <laughs> you know, He said, well, I used to work for Jimmy. And I said, oh, you're my best friend. <laughs> and I introduced him to Bob, and he came on board with the Whalers as part of the team. And he took all of our guitars, realigned them, readjusted them, took all the wiring out, re-gutted them, gave it back to us. And now our instruments were in tune. So that's when I first became very articulate about tuning. And um, Roger explained that in reggae up until Exodus, everything was a little bit out of tune. If you listen to Caribbean music, the steel pan, you know, you kind of get used to it. And it has a sound, but it's not really 440 concert pitch. It's a little bit out of tune. And he said, you know, you guys go to the next level if I tune you up, so he took the bass, took the guitars, made everything in tune with the keyboards. So everything, when you hit a note, it's like if you're Aquarius and you pull that arrow, it's going straight, it's not gonna waver. So our notes stopped wavering, everything was like in, in line and in tune, and if you listen to Exodus, as much as you can make it perfectly in tune, everything was in tune, and it made a difference to that record you know, and the record speaks for itself, you know. Everything was in tune and from that point onwards we learned about being in tune and Roger Mayer was very responsible. So it wasn't really an accident, like Roger worked with Stevie Wonder and Stevie Wonder's three biggest albums, Songs in the Key of Life and the other two, I can't remember the title, of the, but Stevie's biggest album where they invented the synthesizers for Stevie and stuff Roger was part of that team that in, in, invented the synthesizers. And so he was very much into electronics and sound. Now, in his development, he worked for the British Admiralty, the Navy. And his job was to understand or study sound underwater because he worked on submarines. So if you can understand sound underwater, On land, it's like a breeze, you know, it's like painting a picture. And so he took that knowledge, and because he loved playing guitar, even though he was not really a great guitar player, but he understood sound. So he took that information and created these different sounds with guitars. And what he would do is, say you had a circuit board this big he would invent something that would only be just that little corner right there so nobody could figure out what he did. (laughs) You know, you'd be looking all over, but it's just that one little corner that you might totally ignore. That's where he made a difference in the sound. And so he gave all of that information to Jimmy because he grew up with all the people from the Yardbirds. He grew up with Jeff Beck. He grew up with... um, the guitar player from um Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page. And of course, they never wanted to give him any money because they grew up together. You know, like when Keith Richards borrowed the box for, for satisfaction, da, 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 they said, Oh, we're not giving you no money. Oh, you know, go back and make some more boxes for us, you know. Because they all used to go to a place called Ilpie Island where all these bands came from. Um, you know, and uh they wouldn't give Roger any money and when Jimmy discovered Roger, he gave him $80,000 just to come and work with him, right off the bat. And so Roger went with Jimmy and they became like brothers because they were both into sound and guitar and musical tones and all the other British musicians were really upset with him like, why did you give it to this guy from America? And You know, he's not even white. <laughs> why did you give it away, you know, and they were mad with him. And, like, I don't know if you've seen any of your documentaries about Pete Townsend and Eric Clapton and all these guitar players getting together and saying, what do you think about this guy who just came from America, you know. And funny enough, they liked Jimmy. So, you know, they never had no negative repercussions out of it. And they all became buddies. But Roger gave everything to Jimmy. (laughs) And so they were a little bit upset, but they, you know, they... They figured it out, well, we never paid Roger, so I guess, you know, he needs to make some monies too. And so when I met Roger and he came on board with Bob, Bob was like, hey, don't let him get away, you know. <laughs> we wanna hold on to this one, you know. And Bob was also a big fan of Jimmy, so he knew there was something special about Roger. And like, you know, Roger is still operating, and one of the latest bands that he's working with right now is called Coldplay. So they're not a hit by accident. Roger did things for them that gave them a sound. And he's not the type of person that you can say, can I commission you to come and do this? He has to like what you're doing before he'll work with you. He don't even care about the money. For him, it's like a creative source that will last forever. And so he helped Bob's music to last forever. So you you guys can go on line and look at rogermayor.com and see the guy who helped to make music what it is today, especially where sound is concerned. You know, he worked with the Isley Brothers. I mean, everything that he touched, it just goes, you know, because he's way ahead of everybody with sound, you know. uh, He's got a lot of pedals out there in the market. He's now developed um, software that can make digital become analogue. I think he calls it 456 or something like that, because he's into car racing, so it has something to do with racing driver's numbers or something. But he's very... I mean, his head is about this big, so when you see him, you'll figure out why he's so smart. (laughs) 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 But uh, that's a lot of where it came from, the sound, you know? And a lot of people don't realise that the first thing that really grabs you with music It's usually the sound, you know, the sound will suck you in right away or make you go, wait a minute, let me listen to that. And then you get into the melody, then you get into the song later on. But it's usually the sound that attracts you first, you know, or the difference of the sound, you know. So that's a very interesting point that I like to express to people who are getting involved in music and not just how good you are. I mean, you don't have to be the best player in the world, Just have your own sound, you know? That always gets you there. Be original, have your own sound. You don't have to be the best singer in the world, just have your own tone. Nobody else on the planet will have a tone like you, and it will stand out, you know? But unfortunately, a lot of people think, I have to sound as good as him, or I have to sound like her, or I have to sound like this, but that actually inhibits you. You know, just be yourself, develop your own DNA in the sound of music, And arts, and uh, I hope that will help you.
0: So, this what I'm, what I've asked you to play. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's uh, what I think is really interesting about about this song. The which really the foundation of the song is the guitar line that you're going to play, which I think really is sort of a, a watershed moment in reggae music because it it did present kind of a different sound for, I mean, you're talking about sound, it provided a sort of a different sound for Bob Marley's music.
2: Well, you have it absolutely right. Um, What happened was uh, we were in New York and Bob had a problem. The problem was that black Americans did not really gravitate to his brand of music. At that time, reggae, you know, black Americans, they have a lot of choices where our music is concerned. They have blues, they have jazz, they have gospel, they have rock, they have pop, they have R&B. They have a lot of choices. And so reggae, which just, oh, a little third world Caribbean music, a calypso thing going on over there, they never really paid much attention. Bob was really supported by, you know, predominantly white college students. And, of course, Chris Blackwell packaged everything like a rock band, you know, like it wasn't just a third world steel pan or something it was really packaged very well very well organized and promoted and made very attractive to a certain type of people who would make it like a cult type of thing you know mainly the college students at that time the hippies the, the heads you know the grateful dead type people you know the punks all those type of people who could gravitate towards reggae and the message and um you didn't have to be the greatest player in the world to actually be involved so um, Bob was trying to figure out how he can come up with a song that would bring more people to support his message and music and we met a DJ by the name of Frankie Crocker who I believe the station was called WBLS in New York and they were like the biggest black radio station anything played there was a hit you know and Frankie was a big fan of Bob, and he came and Bob said, you know, Frankie, what, what do you recommend I do to try to make a song that, you know, black Americans would also gravitate towards? Because what was being planned uh, was a 60-city tour with Stevie Wonder. And so, therefore, that would have helped to bring a different audience to Bob. But we needed a song to come out before the tour that would help to bring other people to the fold. And so he said, well, you know, something like James Brown, you know, a little bit danceable, a little bit funky, a lot of soul, not so much on the one drop beat of reggae, you know, a bit more, you know, danceable and more palatable for other genres of music that black people were into at the time. And so... Well, and I was at this meeting, and I was thinking about it. And then one day we went back to England, and I was sitting there, and I was doing I said, what's that? I said, I don't know, just something. He said, can I have that? I said, okay, <laughs> if you must. And then he came back the next morning and said, could you be loved and be loved? And I thought, can I have a piece of that? <laughs> <laughs> And that was where the song came about, you know, and it was an instant smash. And it got all the black people dancing and it went to number five on Billboard, or or number 10 actually, Billboard. And um, that's the history behind that song. You know, it wasn't an accident, it was actually crafted from conversations with people about how can we bring people together with the music and the lyrics. Could you be loved and be loved? are so simple, you know, that we're just a song. The whole thing is like, could you be loved and be loved? Can you? (laughs) Do I get a yes out there? (laughs) Okay, so go ahead, play the
0: music. And you worked with Bob Marley from 1977, pretty much up till, well, his final concert and his final moments and were involved at, very involved with him at that time. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that that point, the, the final concert, because I know that it was, uh, as you've told me, it was a bit unexpected. It wasn't what people thought was happening.
2: Yes, um, it was very, very unexpected because Bob, he was very physical in terms of sport, he loved to play soccer. He played soccer in the dressing room, he played soccer on the stage and check. you know. Like he told me one day, you know, I never envisioned myself being a singer, guitarist, songwriter. I always envisioned myself being a soccer player playing for Liverpool or Manchester United in England or something like that. So he said that was his first passion, was to be a soccer player. And his first manager was the best ever soccer player in Jamaica, a man by the name of Alan Cole, who was recruited by Pele and is still the only Jamaican to have ever played for a Brazilian team, Santos. He was that good. I mean, his feet were like his hands, you know. And He and Bob hit it off, not just because of soccer, but because they had a similar background, you know, being both Jamaicans and growing up in a similar way, et cetera. And uh, so, you know, it was difficult for Bob to split himself between what he really wanted to do was be a soccer player. Oh, I'm a musician now. Can I still be a soccer player? So he trained pretty hard and played a lot of soccer everywhere. What was the question again?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Talking about sort of the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the fact that, I mean, that's one of the things The fact that his physicality kind of led to uh, the, the essential tragedy of his his death and just-
2: Yeah, well, Bob played soccer a lot If he had the right shoes, he would play If he didn't have the right shoes, he would play barefoot And he was in Jamaica and he stepped on a rusty nail And Bob grew up in the countryside in Jamaica They don't have doctors there You know, you use homeopathic type medicine You know, you take a leaf from the tree and you rub on it and you take a branch and you boil some tea or something. And so he never took care of it. And eventually when he discovered that it went gangrene, it was very late and the doctors in England recommended that he cut his toe off. The fact is if you cut your big toe off, then you can't play soccer anymore and you can't balance anymore. You can't dance anymore. And So they tried grafting some skin from his rear... And, you know, grafted the toe. But by then, the blood was already contaminated. So it spread to his lungs and to his brain, et cetera. And um, none of us in the band knew because he didn't really talk about it. He did, in fact, ask me to take him to a doctor in England to check it out. And that's when the doctor told him to cut it off. And he didn't want to cut it off. And all of the people who advised him told him, no, it's got to be another way, you know, don't listen to this doctor. But in fact, the doctor was quite right. I think he would have lived if he'd taken away that element so it wouldn't spread, you know, throughout his body. And he went to play soccer in New York just before the Stevie Wonder tour. And he had um like a stroke and went into a fit and eventually came out of it. And then everyone got really scared and took him to the doctor. And then they realized that the cancer was in his lungs and it was a big tumor in his brain about this big. And that's what caused him to have the stroke. And they diagnosed that he had maybe two weeks to live. Of course, no one in the band knew this. So we're, you know, getting ready to do this concert. And um, Alan, the soccer player ex-manager of Bob came to the band and said, we need to have a meeting, you know, there's something going on you guys should know about. And he explained everything to us, you know, and that the doctors recommended that Bob no longer tour until they could see what they could do further, if they could do anything at all. And um, we were like in shock, you know, everybody was in shock, Like right? we We're looking at each other like, what's going on? You know, this can't be real. There's nothing wrong with him. We were hanging out yesterday, you know. But the people who knew that he had the stroke knew something was going on. And those were mainly the guys who played soccer with him every day. It wasn't this band. We we were off doing other things like buying instruments or whatever, being in New York, you know. And um, so we decided that if this is gonna be the last concert, then we gotta play the best we've ever played in our lives, you know and just make it be a positive energy and maybe that energy would help to make him well. And, uh, you know, I went into Bob's dressing room and he was, like, looking in the mirror and going like this because you can't see nothing. And he's going, can't see nothing, but the doctor said there's something big in there like this and I've been getting headaches lately and not knowing why and et cetera, et cetera. And he did the concert and it was flawless, you know? And uh, everyone's saying, but how can he be that sick and only have two weeks to live and look how he's performing? So his inner self didn't accept it, you know, but his physical self was showing the signs and it was very evident that something wasn't right. And so he went to the Sloan Kettering our cancer research clinic in New York and they gave him some chemotherapy that was pretty heavy and his hair fell off and that wasn't helping. He just lost a lot of weight from that because that pretty much destroys all the cells, the good and the bad in your body. Um but then we decided to try this German doctor, Dr. Hissel's in Bavaria, and he had success with a few of his patients by um, treating them with um, serum, the um, liquids from plants, the protein, and that was all that you would intake intravenously. Because with chemotherapy, it affects your intestines, your digestive system, and Bob's digestive system after the radiation treatment was like, somebody tied a knot in it and made it really tight, so he couldn't digest anything. And so the only way that he could be helped was to feed him intravenously liquid and he started to gain weight because eventually they would have to cut him and go inside and undo that knot but unfortunately um we have this thing in jamaica where we believe that certain foods can cure certain things <laughs> but it's not really true you know <laughs> and so they brought him food that he hadn't eaten for months like a, there's a thing called cassava, and they make something that they call a bammy. It's like um, it's like what some people call a dumpling, you know? They, don't, you guys know what a dumpling is, but it's very. It takes a long time to digest, and so he couldn't really digest anything. And they gave him fish, and they gave him that, and he was like, "Wow, I've met this stuff for months. Let me." And the doctor already warned everyone: don't give my patient nothing to eat. Nobody. And they did it behind the doctor's back. And of course, he couldn't digest it. And it was coming out of his pores. And of course, the doctor came back and threw everybody out, including Bob. Because he said, I can't save you now. I can't cut you. You you don't have enough body strength. And so they put Bob on a concord and took him to Miami. And they had to take him straight to the hospital. And he passed. And that was that. And I was in Jamaica, because he'd asked me to go to Jamaica and check on the house studio, our recording studio, make sure everything was cool down there. And I arrived home, and I turned the radio on, and as I turned it on, I heard Jamaican third, first third world superstar Bob Marley just passed in Miami. And I kind of froze, but I just left him in Germany. He was fine, because I didn't know that they gave him this food to eat. I found out later on. And I was like, my eyes were full of water and I grabbed my guitar and I ended up writing this song that I'd never done before in my life, write a song just off the cuff. The words, the lyric, the music, everything just came out. And the song was titled, Life Without You, It's Not The Same. So that was the passing of Bob Marley. But the music is still here and we're here to talk about it and enjoy it. So don't feel too bad, <laughs> you know, part of life. Whenever I think of Bob, I always smile because he liked to smile a lot. I'm sure you've seen a lot of pictures with him. Didn't he have a beautiful smile? <laughs> so I want you guys to smile. Don't don't feel too bad that, you know, the story is a little bit morbid, but it's just another way of life, you know, just things happen in life sometimes we know the reason why sometimes we don't know the reason why and maybe that the way it was written for bob so he did a great work and it lives on you know so be happy and just enjoy his music okay
0: (laughs) and and part of the reason why why it lives on is because of yourself and other members of the whalers that that kept it going for uh quite a few years after his his passing which meant that you moved from playing lead guitar to being the lead singer as well, and um, I think that you're going to play a little bit for us, demonstrating just that that move from being one of the one of the band to to leading it. Yeah. Well,
2: before I joined Bob, I was singing and playing guitar, and when I joined, I was doing backing vocals, and he'd say to me. You ready to sing yet? <laughs> you know, joking with me sometimes, because like, he figured if he had a little sore throat or something, I could maybe sing a couple of lines and help him out, you know? So he allowed me to sing a couple of lines. Actually, I sing a couple of lines on Could You Be Love, and a lot of people think that it's Bob, but it's actually me. <laughs> and um, the Whalers had pretty turmoil Passage after Bob's passing Because Bob When he was very young Signed a lot of contracts Publishing deals and stuff Not knowing the business side of things Made a lot of mistakes And so when most of us Got together with Bob We never signed anything It was just a handshake And of course when he passed The lawyers loved that (laughs) Oh more money for us You guys don't have a piece of paper So The Whalers had a pretty turmoil time since passing the ball. We never actually got paid for our royalties and stuff because, you know, music industry is not... don't care. (laughs) You have to negotiate. And so I would advise you all guys to learn the business side of the music business. If you're going to be involved, don't rely on anybody else but yourself and don't share lawyers, get your own lawyer. (laughs) You know, it's like conflict of interest when you share something like that. And, um, you know, it's part of the business, you have to learn. You know, if you think back to all the blues musicians who would get a bear for their song, and now those songs generate millions of dollars, you know, they don't get anything, you know. And it hasn't really changed. If you're naive and you don't know the business, people will take advantage, you know, whether they're good people or not, that's another story. But when people see an opportunity, it's like a temptation to just, well, this person's quite happy, they don't want the no money. I'll just keep it, <laughs> you know, so you need to know what your rights are when it comes to the business side of things. And um, two weeks ago, um, Family Man Barrett, the bass player, who's the most senior member of the Whalers right now, who's still alive, Um, called us and said we need to get back together. So right now we have lawyers drafting contracts for us to get back together and we hope to be back on the road December or January. (laughs) But this time there'll be a piece of paper. (laughs) See Bob's songs are quite lively and fun, you know. A lot of his music was very fun and enjoyable and very simple, you know, a baby can understand it. Grandma can dance to it, you know. And um, then you have other songs that have a very positive and strong message. And there's also a very spiritual side to as well, being a Rastafarian. Um, Being a Rastafarian basically is just the elements of all the good things from all the religions, you know, whether you're a Christian, a or Muslim, a or Jew, or whatever, it's the positive and the good in that or out of that that makes you a Rasta. Looking for the truth and trying to practice it. I mean, we're not perfect, but if you try, you become a Rasta. <laughs> not about the hair. It's not about the clothes. Not about smoking marijuana. It's just about enjoying each other and being of service for each other. You know, I might sweep the streets and you might be a doctor or a lawyer. It's all equally important because I'm keeping the place clean for you and you're going to help me when I need legal help and when I need medical help (laughs) and we exchange. We're being of service to each other and singing music or playing music or being an artist or a dancer, it's the same thing, you're creating, a feeling, an emotion, something from within that we can all share. And there's no animosity, there's no jealousy, there's no greed, there's no jealousy. It's just what you call unconditional love. And that's what I think the essence of reggae coming from Bob Marley. I mean, there's dancehall reggae that's a little bit provocative and, you know, whatever. And there's other styles of music that don't really deal with the positive side of in you know, a day-to-day environment, it's more like comedy, but the reggae that we performed as Bob Marley and the Wailers, it's a mixture of fun and message and learning about life and enjoying the most beautiful gift, which is life itself. Yeah? <laughs> <clears throat> We've all been made slaves, no matter if you come from China or India or England or Ireland or Jamaica or part of Africa, We've all used our own people as slaves. Every race has done that. Chinese did it. British did it. You know, the Irish did it. The, Indians, the Africans did it. You know, we all do it. But it's not a good thing to do. So we have to move towards a better way of treating each other. And we've been able to abolish slavery on one level, but there's still mental slavery. There's still slavery, which is like, professional jealousy-type slavery. they are all different types of slavery that we're still learning how to rid ourselves of so we don't have to have any more wars or anything like that, you know? Right? (laughs) right. (laughs) One last thing. Those of you who are songwriters, try to write a song every day. (laughs) I'm serious. Bob Marley tried to write a song every day. At the end of the year, he'd have about maybe 150, and he'd take the best 15 or 12 for the album. So just keep writing and things will happen okay (laughs) all right and thanks to red bull yeah (laughs) all right red bull let's not forget red bull thank you red bull my first time doing this i'm a little bit nervous but thanks for supporting me and making me feel comfortable and at home and thank you red bull for the opportunity god bless you all
1: hey this is todd burns again thanks for listening to couch wisdom Uh, before you go i just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the academy the red bull music academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals almost every year since 1998 we've done the main academy event in one city the lecture you just heard for instance was from the academy in montreal but we do events uh, around the world throughout the year And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.